listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we have a true, legit, card-carrying legend of music on the show. Thanks to you, Rob. Yeah, this was a this was a fun one. I had to get crafty with how I landed this one. If you'd like to learn about that, let's stay on in the intro. I've I've come to a lot of the people I meet who listen to the show. I'm not saying it's a lot of people, but every uh-huh. once in a while I meet people who listen to the to the show, and they're often younger people who aspire to do interviewing themselves. So, a lot of times to get these interviews, you have to go outside the box. You can't always count on people to land stuff for you. As a matter of fact, you know we've mainly landed all our interviews ourselves, and you have to if you don't have a big name behind you you have to get crafty and this is one really good example of it and you stay tuned afterwards and if you want to get crafty with your finances seth well then you obviously go to pole clark that's right pole clark they are out of atlanta georgia a fine accounting firm and business development business management etc please check them out online at poleclark.com music fans sports fans and specialists in entertainment and i guess sports you know the, 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 Pretty much it, everyone that's out of work right now. Right. True. But, well, music's going to come back. <laughs> music's going to come back. It's, it's, it's interesting. I've kind of lost my sports. The one thing I miss is the NHL playoffs. I mean, I, I love sports. Listening. I love sports, particularly postseason. But I'm finding that I can do without them, and I'm finding music is very much filling the void. So you're telling me that you're not... Rob, Mr. Rob Turner, Mr. Owner of all the cassette tapes from 1982, and Mr. I am not going to get rid of anything until I do, which is never Rob Turner. No, until you I don't, listen to it. Until I listen to it. You don't go back and watch sports? Old sports? You're not watching, like, the Braves Baseball World Series? You're like, come on, really? Well, I had those all on videotape, and I've gone through those. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the audio cassettes. Yeah. Wow. And it's funny because online when they rerun stuff or when they're arguing over who was the best this or that, I just don't care. I just don't care about sports. And the only thing I miss is the NHL playoffs. When they come back, I'll be all about them. Love to see Tom Brady play for Tampa. I would love to see that there's so many changes in the NFL. I hope it happens. My prediction, my listeners, is that the first four yeah. games will be pushed to the end of the season, and the season will start in October, and the Super Bowl will be in the first week of March. Crowds or no crowds? No crowds until the playoffs at the earliest. Hmm, interesting. Well, uh, while we're talking about sports, I want to talk about something real quick, Rob. I just want to get it in a quick plug, uh, just like they would in a sports radio show. Uh, but it has nothing to do with sports. It has to do with Dave Bruza. Oh! June 1st, a week uh, from today, actually, next Monday night. So when you're listening to this, June 1st. 2020, we're going to do a Facebook Live, YouTube live stream interview with the one and only Dave Bruza from Green Sky Bluegrass. The last time I saw Green Sky Bluegrass perform, it was Dave Bruza's birthday. And oh, there the- were many people in the audience, one of which I have a great picture of, dressed as Bruza. Collect some photos, Rob. I can, I can stream them in the, in the stream. I can include those in the stream. And at now twice now, he and I have had just chats, just... <laughs> Rob is a bromance with him. So yeah, he let's and just I be click, honest. But most of these musicians, let's just between you and me, most of them, they're done with me. When we're done with the interview, they don't want to be around me. And Seth, or even during the interview, for that matter. <laughs> and can you blame him, Seth? I really? mean, no. I mean, I can't. But there are exceptions. I'm learning. Billy Cobham is one. Dave Bruza is one. Uh, any of the Humphreys guys? <laughs> no, probably well, not. You'll have to tune into something else to find that out. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Billy Strings. Day, Billy time. Strings sitting and I hit it off. I was Keller Williams. But, um, but, um, bum. Whatever the case, I, I would like to say that, um, 
I'm not a big movie guy, but I'm a huge podcast guy. He's not a big movie guy. He's just a big guy. And uh, But lately, I've been curious about some movie things, and there are only two, All right. two podcasts that I turn to for, for movie-oriented things. Okay? And the first one is... Radio Labyrinth. It's right out of here, out of Atlanta. I actually bought one, a couple of their masks. That's my friend Tim Anders. Uh, our listeners may know him as Jam Band Trump. Which, but the episode got a little bump at the uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, I think people are starting to get the smile behind it. I think uh, there were some silly reactions at first, but that's what to be, what's to be expected. And number two in Rob's movie podcast list. Welcome to the party, pal. And that's on Osiris. Like us is on the Osiris Podcast Network. And even though, um, they, they, I mean, you and I listened to, what was that movie we saw where you missed Major Paul Eines? Oh, the, uh, stop. I, I was, was high, the yeah, yeah. Uncut Gems, which is now available on HBO. That's why Seth. Or is like, it on HBO or is it on, Seth whatever, it's Seth available. Seth ate edibles point. and Seth doesn't do that a lot and he was stupefied. He was giggling in inappropriate times during the movie. Um, but the uh, Welcome to the Party Pal episode I'd like to tell you about, though, was about television. Episode 51. Chris Thompson, who with Michael Shields, our listeners better know Michael Shields. Yes, they should. I've talked about him a bunch, but Chris Thompson is also a host on there. Um, there's an HBO series called The Leftovers that a lot of people are excited about. I saw a little bit of the first season, maybe the whole, I don't remember. Is it good? The people who like it really like it. Well, and uh, Chris and Michael break it down in episode 51 of... Welcome to the party, pal. Now, if you listen to something like that, does it ruin it for you? Is it a spoiler? Or how do they approach That's that? actually a really good question. It depends on the person. For someone like me, I wouldn't ruin it. I'm totally into hearing from people who know more about something than I. I, without, I watching, pa- without watching yeah. Leftovers, you're like, okay, like it could intrigue you to watch it. Exactly. Interesting. Particularly, okay. I know these guys are passionate and knowledgeable. They've ev- evidenced it in the, f- in the past. So they're the perfect show to listen to to decide whether or not to watch a show. And I'm much more inclined to listen to podcasts. So it takes podcasts to convince me to make the effort to go watch TV. Because I'm just going to keep listening to podcasts, if not. Well, hopefully you, listeners, will keep listening to this podcast. Because we've got a really special guest for you. We've already kind of laid it out. But I come from the School of Jazz. Matter of fact, I, uh, Rob, you're looking right there. My trumpet. My, You see these books right here? Yeah. I got my old books out. I'm, uh, I've been working on my chops. Although I do need help. So uh, anyone that wants to sponsor a lesson, Shimoner, that's at Shimoner. You can Venmo me. And that money will go to Benny Bloom, trumpet player from Le- who I will take a lesson with if you sponsor me. But anyway, that has nothing to do with our guest today. Our guest it today. actually does, Seth, because I was in the shower today thinking to myself, because I was re-listening the interview, and I'll give you one uh, spoiler, is that um, I kind of chided Billy, um, and it had to do with Red Rocks. And he, uh, he brought forth that he's never performed at Red Rocks, which I kind of knew it was kind of the part of the chiding. You'll see it when we get to it. My point being, it, re- it made me realize my dream bill for Red Rocks oh. when they come back. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I would like Billy Cobham and Lettuce opening for Humphreys McGee, and I would like it starting early enough so that each opening band can get a long set and Humphreys there for a full two-set show. Or, and then, of course, collaborations. And that'd be cool. I just don't see Lettuce opening for Humphreys when they could sell out on their own. They... With Billy Cobham on the other side of it, with the, with the possibility of major jam sessions at the well, end maybe of Maybe how about a weekend? How about a weekend where one night's Lettuce and the next night's Humphreys? Can you do that? As long as one night has Billy Cobham with both nights and Benny, does. so that Benny and Billy can sit in with Humphreys and do early but Billy stuff and Miles, some Miles stuff. Well, That's about, my dream. Or what about we just bring them here? Uh, Benny because and Billy. Because my, my point being, I want Billy Cobham to play Red Rocks and Humphreys McGee, my friends, ah, gotcha. could maybe make that happen because I know they love Billy Cobham too. Billy Cobham, for you guys who don't know, he played with Miles Davis. He was a founding member of Mahavishnu. Um, he and John McLaughlin really kind of 
carved out the initial ethos for Mahavishnu Orchestra. But uh, Billy also, on his own, in 1973, released Spectrum, and in 1974, released Crosswinds. These are considered iconic records in the history of fusion. And Crosswinds, he just reinvented... Um, with a record called Time Lapse Photos with younger musicians, including Fareed Hawk, who you know from Garage Mahal. Oh, yeah. And uh, we talk about that a lot in this interview, and uh, it's called Time Lapse Photos, and it's an updated version of Crosswinds. But, I mean, he has he's fronted so many great records, you know, a, a funky thigh of sings, Inner Conflict, Stratus, I mean, just on and on. There's so many great Billy Cobham CDs. And also Deadheads, he was in Bobby and the Midnights, you know? I didn't know that. I forgot that. That's so crazy. So we talk a little Festival. bit. Festival. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I got to tell you, Bobby Midnight's get a bad rap. And I, I think it's because their second record was a little rough. But their first record is great. And they really could cook. I know it's it's peak cheesy early 80s Bobby. But um, it could be fun to watch on YouTube. And, and when it comes right down to it, they, they could get into some pretty deep, thick jams. <laughs> they really could. And folks, there's a lot of jazz names getting thrown around and stuff like that in this interview. Feel free to email us if you have any questions. Inside out, WTNS at Gmail. Uh, you jazzbos, if you're listening and you love this, please review it on iTunes. Give it five stars. And if you hate it, uh, just email us and uh, we might re- read it on the air if it's clever, if it's cutting and accurate. Well, thanks for the setup there, Rob. Enjoy the music that we have on the episode and stick around for the outro for a little bit back from Rob and I. All of the music is from Time Lapse Photos. The Crosswinds, Crosswinds Project, released last year. So get your seatbelts on, everybody. It's now time to hear from a legend. Billy Cobham. Sitting in the American Hotel, high above Atlanta, Georgia, a hotel that's been very kind to our podcast. My friend, associate, and engineer Ira Gross and I are honored to be in the presence of the legendary drummer and composer and band leader, Billy Cobham. Hi, everybody. <laughs> 
and Six Days at Ronnie Scott's is a new book by Brian Gruber that where he explains the scene and interviews Billy and a lot of Billy's associates, including your younger brother and all kinds of people. Oh yeah, and Randy's in it. Ron Carter, a lot of. A lot of crazy people. Yeah. And an amazing book that will be referenced throughout this, but the fact that Brian grew up blocks away from Billy and has followed his career is a big part of what makes this book an incredible success. But we're going to start right away with the new CD called Time Lapse Photos. Right. Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. The Crosswinds Project. Actually, you're right. Uh, and and it's kind of, it's a good a good way to put it, Back to the Future, yeah. Back to the present, really. But... With a, a tingle of where we could go, and um, I, I, I think that it's it's a it's a really good thing to to look at what this was all about. I've always been in in the past trying to figure out since I had a band. I don't have a manager. I am the I am the go guy, go to guy. So the first big problem was that I was the artist, and and and. Middle, middle people, management, promoters, they, they don't like to talk to artists if they don't have to because it means it's black and white. Either you're in or you're out, you know. And I got it, you know. But I was, I, so I figured, I, and terrible, terrible me, uh, negotiator, because it was always about, no, I don't like that, so I guess I'm not doing it. Okay, see you later. Bye. <laughs> uh, and that's, you can't negotiate like that, but what you can do as far and it's been I've proven over the past fifty years is play your buns off and play it like it's the last gig that you may ever have. Not as an individual, but you bring an entourage who also respects and 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 you and there's mutual respect amongst you and everybody really wants to see this thing happen for the sake of the music, for the art. And if we're on the right page, I found that, man, this goes a long way. Why? Because it's very unique. It's very rarely done. I'm not coming to a venue to play just because my name is the largest one on the marquee. The only reason why that may be is because I'm responsible to make sure everybody gets there on time, do what we're supposed to do, and get out of Dodge you know, without any problems. That's rare, unfortunately. And so therefore, it's my responsibility as the the leader to cover those bases and also to play the music, not necessarily in that order, but yes, both are equally important, but you can't have one without the other. If everybody's comfortable playing on the bandstand and enjoying themselves, and by the way, at the end, they go, okay, that's cool. Um, pay me now, please. And the money is in their hand. All right. Proverbially, you know, it could be in their bank account, but they have for your records to take a look and say, oh, fine, I mean, you pay, thank you very much. It's bright-eyed, the shoulders go down, relax. Man, I'm in a place where I can I can now, because I, I, I know the money, I can take pay the bills, I can blah, blah, blah. That continues on. No one wants to leave the band. And the band gets better. Because and, and there's trust. The trust on stage stems about. from the trust off that's stage. That's what I'm talking about. So, you you know, it's mutual respect all the way around, you know. It can only go but so far. 
you know, then you start to, you need to add certain people. Of course you do. But again, it's still on you. And so, you you know, you make your mistakes because you're your best, your best teachers. Um, and I'll go along with my mistakes. It's a lot of logic to to just music and, and because it reflects so much spoken word and what we do every day. So running the band, yeah, okay, we need to get paid. We need to get there so we can play, so we can get paid, so we can leave on time, so we can get to the next gig on time. It's just the normal stuff. Um, minus the the accountant, the the agent, the manager, the 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 the, the local cardinal, the you know the local bishop, the local and you know all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it could be thrown in, and but that's not me. You know, so what I have that's that's really, really the religion part is just the notes we play. If we play well, it ends well. You know, if and everybody is respectful, it'll be okay. You know, I always so far, fifty years, man, most of the time I have to yeah, I, I have to take the knock. If I have a mistake, I'm only too happy to do it because I know I know where it was. I know how to fix it. Or if I don't know how to fix it, I just will not go there again. That's all. It's that easy. Yeah. So that's the CD's titled Time Lapse Photos and the subtitle is The Crosswinds Project mm-hmm. because a lot of the material originally appeared on your seminal 1974, 45 years ago. Yeah. Record uh, only Crosswinds. Miss, yeah. Only missing. We we're only missing uh, Heather. And Heather is not there at the moment because we did it on the Spectrum 40 album. Um, so we replaced it with a tune we didn't do on the Spectrum portfolio, which is Tori and Matador. And that took the place of Heather. Now, um, that said, we continue to grow. I added some more things because I felt different pieces. Because I felt that uh, it also had to reflect how I made the transition uh, 45 years ago to do this. And so, in in this new portfolio, aside from Spectrum and the and the new, not Spectrum, excuse me, aside from uh, Savannah's Serene, which uh, is the intro to uh, Spanish Moss, yeah. Um, um, let's see what else. Uh, by the way, Savannah's Serene with an asterisk is now a piece unto itself. It used to be the introduction, right? To yeah. So, aside from that, Spanish Moss, um, Pleasant Pheasant. Uh, Crosswinds, of course, uh, we've added on the move.
to write originals mm-hmm. but to write originals that fit in as comfortably as they do with this material from 45 years ago was that an added challenge and were the musicians you're working with part of the success of it yeah on both ends um what i what i was able to to garner and pull together for myself uh which i felt very very honored uh about and and, and feel very fortunate about is that I have the, the respect of the people who work with me. Um, people who come to play in my band know that it's not going to be easy. This is not a walk in the park. I, they're there because they know how to play. Uh, I'm not writing stuff that will be schmooze or quiet or anything like that. It's in your face all the time, and you will be playing because that's what the music requires. Um, not just the notes on the paper, but there's a drummer in the band that's going to be pushing you to to get that happening. I'm not talking about loud and louder. I'm talking about the manipulation of all of the assets and facets of the musical uh, environment in real time. So that means you got to know what you're doing on your on your acts, whatever that may be, or you're not going to be there. It's nothing about jumping up and down. If it doesn't work, then you got to leave. And you will know yourself. You will want to leave because you're out of your element. You know, and I, and, and I would feel bad because then that means that I hired somebody that I thought could do it. So what hap- what does that say about me? You know, uh, so it's all about that. You know, it's not like we're perfect at the moment. Uh, Randy and I are pretty old and crotchety. <laughs> Uh, he's been he's been traveling a lot. Um, he works. He's been working for at least as long as me. Every day, I mean, it's so many days he's on the road, and and sometimes it's just not happening. And then now he can get away with a lot of things with everybody else, and then he comes to me. He's got to be ready, and, and he knows it. You've played with him more than any other musician, right? No, uh, I played with Ron Carter more than Randy. Uh, Ron and I started in nineteen sixty six. And that still goes on to this day, on and off, on and off. But, and Brandy and I stopped working together maybe about, this is his first year working with me since maybe 2005. Um, we used to do some things here or there, find him in the studio, blah, 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 blah. But then it stopped and we just went this way. You know, Not for any particular shit's reason. moving in the night, you know, yeah. things things that happened. There's a lot of work. He had his band. Um, he was pushing the Brecker Brothers Project, and they were getting a really good, good, a lot of good acknowledgement. I think part of it was that 
Another one that I could point to, whom I hadn't worked with so long time, because I forgot where he was, Tim Landers. I mean, he, he was in the band until 84. We did the thing in, in, uh, in the Palacio de Congressi in uh, Lugano. It was a project that I did with, uh, I was producing with a local television company called, um, Rock, what was it, the... It wasn't the I can't even remember what it was called now. So it was out there. Herbie Hancock, a whole bunch of us. I had them all come. Everybody I could think of. And uh, we had the, had the budget for it. Uh, Ron was there, Herbie. Uh, Gil Evans Orchestra. Bobby in the Midnights. Where was there? <laughs> um, uh, Bobby Cochran. Alfonso Johnson. Uh, Brent, Brent, Brent Midland. Brent Midland. It was uh, Dave Garland. Dave Garland. We, we did that one. I mean, I had any band and any um, that I was associated with that I could get to come wow. there. I had Louis Belson. I did Gil Evans only. Jack Bruce? Not Gil Evans. I did Gil Evans only vi- uh, television interview that he ever did up to that point. Wow. He died two, no more than two years later, if maybe less. Oh, I want to see He that. was never on TV. But that's, that's there. Um, uh, me and Gil and Louis Belson together, and I was wow. interviewing them. Wow! And that's when I found out. He said, "Gil said, you know, I I never did one of these." Is that do you have access to that? Is that anywhere? Um, we got to find that. Yeah, it's it's um, it might be in my house, and it definitely is in my house. I don't know what shape it's in, <laughs> <laughs> but we're going back to the days of Sony Beta Beta Betamax and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, uh, it's it's it's. I've got all of the originals. I'm so. no stranger to antiquated media delivery vehicles. Yeah, so that's there. Um, oh, let's see the horn trumpet section: Lou Soloff, Randy, uh, the whole Gil Evans Orchestra, Ugh. Howard Johnson. All, all kinds of people made this date. You know, we were there for a week. Tim Landers was the bass player there. Uh, that was '84. Finished touring in '84 that year. Tim went to Los Angeles from one day to the next. I mean, I, I didn't have anything happening. So when I found out Tim wasn't around anymore, that he left for L.A., it, I didn't, I mean, I didn't blink. I just found um, uh, Baron Brown with Dean Brown and Jerry Atkins, and the band kept going. Saw Davis, who was no longer with us, and we just kept working. And we didn't, I was very lucky. We didn't miss a beat. If anything, we just grew you know, and, and it was just, it grew enough that I was just finding the work and, and I was finding it in Europe because I was living in Europe. So I didn't have the competition. I didn't have that factor that I would have had here in the United States. The one thing that I and also, and, and that meant that I would have had to have had management, you know, the usual suspects, uh, staying in the, standing in the middle, you know, doing whatever they do, working there. They're dark magic, you know, somehow, and then blaming me for everything that went wrong. Uh, Talking about as her going, <laughs> yeah, normal. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it's it that 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 was what it was, and and again, it was my would have been my fault, you know, because mm-hmm. I would allow that to happen. Right. So it was kind of nice to go to a place where, at the time, here in the U.S., they thought Europe. What they can't play. They don't know what they're doing. But yeah, but I could do 60 concerts in West Germany because there was no Germany. And um, 
never play the same place twice in a year, um, earning a very, very good living when you added them all together and being an expat, you know, and all of the things that happened back then, like you could get on a train with the whole band, throw all of the back line on the train and book a tour on the train with a group ticket that costs three grand for two and a half to three weeks out. And that's what you did, aside from pay the taxi fare, you know, and uh, all of a sudden everybody was earning a living. And by the way, yeah, they could play. It's just some people just didn't get it. The, the marketing uh, or the, the anti-marketing, the, 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 the concept of, yeah, in competition, make them think that they're subservient, that they're not as good as anything coming out of the States, which is not true. And Billy, there's a lot of examples given in this book, yeah. in Brian Gruber's book, of yeah. different situations mm-hmm. where that happened. So now you got you bring Tim Landers back, yeah. and that's so key when you're a band leader and a drum. You've got to yeah. have the bass. And, and the thing is, is that Tim just sort of literally fell into my lap by accident. I was giving a lecture at Joe Percaro's uh, school in Pasadena, and I hear this voice come and say, hey, Billy, how you doing? I'm going, and that's like 2013, or they're about 2015. I'm going, yeah, I'm okay. And I look, turn around, and see this weathered face and the guy, and I'm going, hey, man, you look familiar. I wonder. I didn't know it was Tim. Wow. I hadn't seen him in so long. I, when he left, I mean, Tim had short hair, and he's right bouncing around, and he comes in, and I'm going, Hey, I know he's just, it's me, Tim. I'm going, Tim? Tim Landers? And I said, yeah, it could. Tim, how are you doing? And you know, I was like, where'd you come from? You know, oh, I just lived down the street. And I said, what? Okay. Yeah, I work for John Tesh. And blah, John Tesh. Now, okay, I get it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, That's you, why I disappear. You can disappear. <laughs> yes, I get it now. Oh, what? Really? But he's played Red Rocks. <laughs> yeah, I never did that. I went there and took pictures, but that's not. <laughs> so, you know, it was, to me, it was like, wow. And I never, I just never thought about it. It all made sense. He, you know, Tim did Disney or whatever else, a, A-list uh, basis in, in L.A. Made sense, man. Earned a living, you know. Uh, put some, his kids through school, blah blah blah. Meanwhile, we're we're rocking. We're we're someplace else. Band of gypsies, usually, you know, somewhere. I said, makes sense. Great, God bless you, man. You know, but then I started to think, well, maybe, maybe uh, something's coming up. I had originally worked with a great, great keyboard player named uh, Scott Tibbs. He Scott designs to this day uh, on Lessons of Change recently keyboards for Roland. He also is the keyboardist when he's you play on that. the uh, on He's on, on, on uh, time-lapse photos. Oh, and he's on this too. Yeah, he is. Um, and I really, I mean, he, he had great ideas and all of that, but what I found with him and, 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 and the, Tim in the band, and originally the saxophone player was, was Ernie Watts, who was not there. Ernie Watts? Yeah. So my the original band was Ernie Watts, Scott Tibbs and we toured we toured Europe. I just needed to test some things to see if Ernie was still there in the way that I remembered him, which is unfair. 
uh, hadn't worked together in many years. Unfair to expect, not necessarily un- unfair, unfair to need. Unfair to, to, to think that he would be still doing the same thing. He'd been playing a lot of stuff with, as a, with balladeers. Uh, you know, generally, I had him come out 2008, uh, where he played phenomenally with uh, me. Uh, as He was my guest, along with Marshall Jilks, great guitar, uh, trombonist, and uh, Guy Barker, great trumpet player and arranger, arranges a lot of my big band stuff. And we went and played because it was a, I just wanted to see what would happen. I got this idea and I had a very strong supporter uh, named Peter Gabriel who said, okay, let's do it on the, on the world, on the WOMAD tour. So we went to WOMAD and we had this wonderful symphony that was the year before uh, working uh, with uh, Herbie Hancock's Gershwin recordings. And I checked with the, the director and the producers there and said, what would happen if we did something like this and we promoted the, I just didn't know, promoted the music of the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Um, and he said, well, I don't know if I have enough people. Oh, what would we do? I said, well, I need 60 strings. And and uh, so we ended up with 100 people on the bandstand. Oh, my gosh. The following year. Sounds a expen- year to the day I signed the contract. Sounds expensive. Yeah, and we we played Womadelaide outdoors with a hundred pieces, and the uh, we played the music of Intermounting Flame and Birds of Fire. Wow. Um, uh, Colin Colin Towns was the was the arranger, and it was off the hook incredible. And I was the producer of it, and I brought those guys out. And Ernie Ernie sounded fantastic. You know, all of those guys were playing amazing. And I thought, okay, as it, it would be in the music business as usual, there, you know, for every good apple is there's about five bad apples, you know. And so we had a, an idea that we, in essence, in, um, a memorandum of understanding that we would be producing a recording. And then when the the recordist and his little group of people who do that got 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 an understand their heads wrapped around what was coming what was happening on the day of the recording they decided to up the price by like two or three hundred percent and I went I can't I can't afford it man and they thought that I would you know that I was going to go for it because oh I'm in Australia and oh you know I said, no man I, I, if I don't have it I don't have it you know and this was something that I was doing only for me thank goodness so I just asked my crew of which I think one of my guys, my my chief technician Ross, he's here. He was on that, and uh, with another a couple of other guys, and we just recorded it stereo, just for me, you know, and and uh, through Pro Tools, and it was rocking, man. It was rocking, you know. And and again, it was a, these ideas. Uh, these are things that could happen, you know. I did it. Not for John McLaughlin. I did it just for the music. I just wondered, what would I play in a situation like this? Colin did a great job. Everybody got taken care of properly. Uh, it was the right platform. Never to be done again, I don't think. Not by me, anyway. But it was just something I pers- It ended up being something just personally I wanted to see through. You know, all these things happen from time to time for me. 
Um, We'd love to share some of it on the show if you if you want to break off a piece for us. I have to figure out where it is. It's been a while. <laughs> it's with that, but, uh, it's with I that might beta be, video. I might be able to find it, and okay. I'll have to send you it, send it to you. That'd be great. But it's a really special thing. I don't even think well, McLaughlin doesn't even have it. You know, um, he wanted to have it, but we we've not been on really strong speaking terms for many many years. But when I did see him, I told him I did it be, just just as an afterthought. He said, "Well, I'd like to have a copy of it." I don't even remember if I sent it. If I sent it, I didn't get a thank you even. You know, it could be that I sent it, but I, I wasn't expecting a thank you. That's that's a sad. That's the dark side of the business. The but so many other positive things have happened, uh, and uh, all these recordings. It just it's nice to be able to be a small example of what could be if artists really got their heads wrapped around the fact that in fact that that they are in fact. Uh, a kind of a lightning rod for everything that's happening in their community. If they do it right, it's very simple, it's very easy, it's very logical. You know, um, traveling is the most difficult thing to do. The, the gift of the day is playing the gig. You know, on time, as long as it's necessary, and and putting in some good notes in that period, because the rest of the day is really tough. It's about sleeping getting something to eat before the gig, be, you know, not hanging out much. It depends on the kind of music you have, you know. But in this stuff, we have to be physically ready. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. You're going to get the uh, tiger by the tail, and it's going to growl at you if you don't know what to do, you know. And I want my listeners to know, we're going to talk about John McLaughlin in a minute, but one of the great things about Billy Cobham is that he continues to evolve, he continues to bring us new material, and last night's show was exemplary of that. And um, the keyboardist that you've replaced him with, you call him Ozzy. He's ever flowing over there. Yeah, his name is Oz Eselden. Yeah. Yes. And uh, he's from Egypt. He's from he's from Cairo. Mm-hmm. And he took uh, 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 Scott's Scott's Hibbs place because um, again, one of the things that's very important for me is that I have to have a have in order for things to function for me, I have to have mutual respect. You know, it. it I've been I've been blessed to see it on both sides now. Sometimes you get people who, most often than not, you get people who don't really respect you because they think they're better than you, but they think they also want to compete and take anything that you have for themselves. Okay, that's good. But then there are others who really want to make you sound good or even better, but they only want to do it in the way that they envision it <clears throat> without rigid, telling you. Rigid thinking kind of thing? You know, pardon? Rigid thinking. Yeah, it's, it's 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 like sitting down with my material, and I said, "Listen, I'd like to hear this." Okay, if there's some changes to be made, at least respect me enough to play what I wrote, and then say, "Look, man, you know, have you ever thought about this? You know, we could do it this way, or we could. I, do you mind if I change this?" Not go and say, okay, then that's just fine. Now, as we play, day one, day two, it continues to get less and less me. And all of a sudden, it's something else different that everybody else has talked about except for the, to, to, except for the arranger. Right. Oh, yeah, and I'm considered the drummer. So drummers don't really, you know, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Even if you wrote it, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> But I loved it when I first heard it, you know. But 
I think you can do it. I can do it better for you than you can do it. And so you go that route, you go that route until eventually you get into an, an environment where now we're recording. And things are, things are now way, uh, quite a ways away from where I was. So I'm going, I like this, but okay, I can compromise. I can take a little bit off here, but I've got to take all this other stuff here away because it really doesn't represent me. And then to turn around and offer, when asked, may I hear uh, what's going on in the studio? Because it wasn't designed in this way to be that I would produce the product. And, and I get back the response that, well, I must, I want to be as diplomatic as possible that, uh, hey, you know, the people that you have working for you are not qualified to, to mix this record. So all I'm good for then is just to pay, for, pay the bills. You know, I'm not, make, I'm, I'm not good enough to mix a record that I wrote because they've changed it all. No, and that's why he's not here. <laughs> you have to at some point go, okay, so as much as I love a lot of the things that you do, where we have to part ways is the fact that even if you say I'm sorry, that isn't enough. Now I have to sit and look at you and go, yeah, I, I, I forgive you, and you still working here? <laughs> I don't think so. No, we got it because I need I need to move on. Otherwise, in my head, I'm looking at at, at the problem, and seeing that the problem is going to come back and, and and go left on me again at some point. It weakens my position in my mind, um, and all these things I don't need to do. And this is out of goodness, you know, which is showing how it's a cycle and how it can be so good that it becomes bad. You know, genius is very, very, very close to being completely out of your mind, you know. Yet, but you, you know, there are people who are out of their heads uh, who can do, work wonders with numbers. And they can do this and they can do that. No, never look, seen a piano in their life and sit down and start to play, no problem. But can't walk two or three steps, put one foot in front of the other. Right. It is what it is, you know. Can you talk about working with a bassoon on this material and talk about Paul? Yes. I'm trying to remember how that happened. And I think it had to do with Roy Wooten. Um, Roy Lamont Wooten. Flectones. Because Paul played with them for a while, right? Mm -hmm. The Flectones. Was in in and I said something to Roy. I said, man, I'm, I'm... I got this thing about I would love to try to use even a e I would I wanted to use an English horn, but English horns are very delicate, even though they have that really rich double reed tone. You can't really hear them very loud. And uh bassoon is uh, 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 an oboe kind of is better. I mean in, in something like uh Oregon, I mean it's kind of nice to hear it. But the English horn is, I didn't hear a good player who could do it and who would improvise on it anyway. You know, I could hear it for specific things. And I thought, there was a guy that was in L.A. that, that played bassoon and he played pretty straight ahead. And Roy said, 
Oh, you mean Paul? Paul Hanson. I go, where did you live? In Tennessee or something? He said, no, man. Paul? Paul was in the band with... with uh, Bella Fuck. Be- yeah, with Bella. I said, well, kind of, kind of rings a bell, but probably... He said, yeah, he was around for a while, and then he went to Japan, I think, for like four or five years, and was they wrote a book at Cirque du Soleil, and he just, for him, playing all the parts. And so, and gave him just about, you know, carte blanche and whatever he needed for him and family for five years, and he just stayed there. I said, okay, that kind of rings, yeah, things are coming closer and coming closer. So where is he now? He says, oh, he's just up in San Francisco if you want to talk to him. He's playing on the corners, and that's on the corner? On the corner. He's playing, he was playing just gig, any gigs he could. Yeah, from what I heard. So I put in a call to him, and he said, sure, I'd like to take a chance. And, and that's how it, I mean, Ernie wasn't working. It was not the, the same Ernie that I was looking for, that I had before. He was all over the sax, but it wasn't what I was looking for. It just, everything had changed. We all had changed. And um, so I thought, okay, we finished this tour with Ernie, this little short thing. Uh, and at the beginning of, of 20, let's see, this is, so 18, we, we did, 19, we didn't. So at the beginning of 2018, I took, him, took on Paul. And he's been working with us ever since. Because he plays excellent soprano sax. Yes. He's a good multi-read player. But all I needed from him was soprano sax and, and bassoon. At the, the bassoon part, we were much more, in the beginning we were playing Stratus and that was more straight ahead. And it was that, but I, had, I heard a, a lot more uh, coming from him with the effects and all of this other stuff. And I thought, well, it's worth a shot. We sh- we sh- I should try, you know. is um, you get the story, you get so many stories, like how Randy first um, got seduced by the Wawa. Essentially, John Abercrombie wasn't at a session, and he just sampled. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, it's wacka, 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 wacka. <laughs> and he still uses it now, right? He was using it last oh, night. Oh, and more, <clears throat> and more. Sometimes he comes out with stuff that's so funny. I just have to laugh, man. You know, I was just like, what is that? Where'd that come from? Not the, Not just the... It's not just the, the treatment of the notes, it's the notes actually that he's playing because if he just played it with a trumpet, you go, that was that funny in itself. 
But now you add that particular dimension, and I'll just crack up, man, just smile. And it just opens up another world, you know, for me, when it's working right. And as usually, as usual, that has a, that's a double-edged sword. It depends on on the on the venue and and this and that. Oh boy, do it's they open up something? Do they open up new worlds for each other, Paul and and, and Randy? Mm-hmm. With so does Paul ever play the bassoon through a wawa? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Paul has a whole plethora of of different sounds. It's not just a wawa. Sure, it's just it's it's, it's just four, the idea of a bassoon four, through a wawa. Four bassoons playing in fourths, you know, mm-hmm. and all of this. And you just you going, what is that? You know, and he then then the notes, you know, because it's like fourths diminished this that, and like, how are you thinking this? You know, and it it's working, you know. But again, it's working because he's in, he's inspired by by something that's. It's generally, uh, how can I put it, taken for granted by the intelligent community, the academia, you know, as being, ugh, you know, it's very simple. Anybody can do that. Yes, but everybody doesn't. It's just plain simple. It's one of my frustrations with jazz, to be honest with you. Uh I love jazz, but it's about individuality. It's about creativity. It's Mm -hmm. about new. Mm -hmm. But there's this, there's so many people that resist those exact same things who know jazz much better than I do. It's so frustrating to me. Exactly, because they're desperate to be heard. They're desperate. I am a star. I am an artist. I am this. I am that. It's me, 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 me. That's why I don't consider myself a jazz artist at all, ever. Uh, you won't see me in Downbeat, you know, um, because they don't consider me a jazz artist. I'm politically incorrect as far as they're concerned. Yeah. So, um, and Farid Hawk, who I'm, there was a band way back that I used to see a lot called The Slip, and Garage mm-hmm. Mahal, mm-hmm. I first found when they were co-billing with them and they would play with each other. It was wonderful. Were you familiar with Garage Mahal? Have you heard their music? Sure, I know Kayak Art. He was my bass player for Is that, Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And Kai toured with me back in the 90s. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, I knew that Ty was doing that, and those guys would play. I knew about Garage Mahal because the name was really funny. As a matter <laughs> of fact, there's a story uh, about the Mahavishnu Orchestra, because all of this stuff is, you know, uh, kind of leads in the same leans in the same direction. Kai worked with John. Uh, McLaughlin uh, in the, earlier in the 90s I think too as well and uh, came out of John got him out of Berkeley and, and the rest was, was history um, but listening to the way he plays and his his mind is just amazing the concept the perform the the, the multi rhythms and blah 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 that all this stuff is quite quite amazing to hear him play and yet he has a groove very strong group which is key with you you like you uh, say yeah everything it, it has play to has be to... it has to be it has to have that thing man uh in mahavishnu we had to have that groove i mean is it there was a couple of of flashbacks of, of mclaughlin taking up rick's bass and laying down a very serious groove pre pre level 42 i mean i mean like Mark King, pre-Mark King, and it was just just going, and everybody's going, yeah, man, we should recall it. And John said, no, 
I play guitar, and he'll pick up the guitar. And, and everybody goes, yeah, well, that's what I thought. You know? <laughs> the only way to get you to stop this is to say that we should do this. <laughs> so tell us how, what Fareed brings to the table, and, and did he help compositionally as well with some of the new material? Oh, no, he didn't help compositionally at all with the new material. But I, what he did do, though, was he wrote out one, I was going to do it, I was going to write out Surround of the Serene, and, and then arrange it for for the band. And he asked me if I if he could do it. All he had to do is just write out what what Garnett played and what she's what he did. And the rest was easy because every everybody just felt it. It's the, and it's pretty much done this that way. Um, they treated chords and yeah 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 yeah. You know you can call 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 this chord this. You can change this note here and blah blah blah. You didn't write anything. This is all my material, and and you weren't looking to replicate it. You were looking to reinvent it, yes. but still stay true to the original. Yes. So, what I then decided to do is to let it open up into an actual uh, piece where there were more than one, more than two solo, more than one solos, because Garnett was the only soloist on the record. Um, no, he wasn't. I think. George may have played a little bit. I'm not too sure, but that, it was just enough because it was a lead into uh, Spanish Moss, um, and uh, for this that I was looking, but I wanted it to be a real standalone, the it's same way it out. did it. So that worked. Then I could just bring in Spanish Moss and yeah. and make it a, a, a fuller piece, personality wise. So even that song, even though there's improvisation within the solos. Mm -hmm. You're not, there's no ensemble improv in the middle of it. You know where you're going the whole time, but it's for That's the whole right. set, right? Mm -hmm. And the key to that piece is that it's very, very slow. When it's played right, it would be... So these are tempos in rock and pop that are very, very slow. Da, two, three, four. Ba, da, do, do, da. Boom. Ba, do, da, da, da. Leaving that much air in between the notes for people who love to play fast have problems, you know. And again, we hearken back to the days of DMO. We didn't have a lot of ballads. The one big ballad that we had was was the Irish Stream one, Lotus on an Irish Stream. It's very slow, very slow. And it again happening there. It was such a shame because it just, until John brought up the banjo, then all of a sudden he played and it was a lot less notes played. And the, the, the beauty of playing and letting, letting these notes ring and think of, of a, a, in terms of how you are creating this, this presentation of what you feel. You're speaking to the public uh, we don't always talk very quickly. We don't always come out with a plethora of, of words uh, in 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 a matter of a couple of seconds. You know, you have to. There's always a breath. I, you have to do this or that. And when you start to do it that way, then you have to choose the right note to make that happen. And the, one of the few musicians that was ever able to consistently make that happen. There's a trumpet player named Miles Davis. So there you go. One last thing on the new CD. There's a great story behind Under the Baobab Tree. Went to... Went to... Uh, 
Namibia. Uh, first time to experience the dunes that move, because um, they do move, and they're, some of these dunes are 500, 500 meters high. Uh, and they, 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 re, they reclaim the earth from, from the South Atlantic Ocean. They move the ocean out. That's why you have over 200 wrecks of ships stuck in the dunes. That the, the dunes cover the ships. Right. And then, and then they move and shift the ships different places. And you, it's crazy when you look at a, a, a map of where a ship may have, may have event, uh, initially uh, sailed without a beach. problem. Yeah. We're talking galleons, Spanish galleons, uh, all this kind of stuff. And over time, that galleon might be 100 miles up north, you know, just because the dune took it. So they come back around where they've sailed without a problem yeah. and suddenly, boom, problem. But over years, you know, this, yeah. this will happen. And, but overnight, they'll, they'll, the, the, the earth just moves out. The, the, the ocean, uh, just the currents move back. Ships, oil tankers, ah, great example. Close encounters of the third kind. Yeah, that ship is still there. Wow, it's it's a it's a it's still a, it's a skeleton of its former self. But it, it that's when I first got intrigued by this whole thing, and, and I said, "Man, I'd love to go to that place." I didn't know it was called the Skeleton Coast, but that's one thing that's there. Then you can go farther inland, and you'll find these behemoths of trees. Not many of them. Because, but in the desert, they're still surviving after thousands of years with roots going out hundreds of miles in all. Yeah, more wide than tall. It would be easy to say maybe twice the size of this room is one tree. Easily. One, you know, this whole area of, of, my, of my hotel room, round one tree. We had, we tried to get... Everybody to put their hands around the tree. I was in, in, in Brazil where the tree also now exists. But that it's a young tree. And we had 32 people go put their hands, like my size, to get to touch each other on the tree. The heavy part is that everybody, when we finally got it together, we put our hands on the, around the tree and we were leaning on the tree. And you just got this vibe you know low frequency kind wow. of thing and you go whoa this is heavy this is really heavy you could feel it you could not you cannot hear that line you know we're by the water not loud again just but on the on the west side of the Atlantic now North Atlantic it's amazing amazing feeling and I just like with eggshells, I had a tune called Eggshells Still on My Head, which is all about a, when I was working with UNICEF, a bunch of kids that I was working with in Santos, Brazil, and with Pele and a bunch of people who were sponsoring this thing for, for UNICEF. and The uh, soccer player, Pele? Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, these, these kids were... What's his name? I can't remember. His name was Washington, and I think her name was 
Pauline or something like this, or Catherine. Washington was 13. His girlfriend was 14. They had two kids. Yes, sir. Different culture. Oh, no. Not just different culture. They were living on the street because they had to live on the street. They had a family of, of, of relatives in, the, in, in, say, a cinder block house in a, uh, you know, in a favela somewhere nearby, very close by. The favelas, you could, all in the hills. And only they knew how to get there and back, okay? Uh, we're talking 12, 13 kids, uh, you know, just just overrun with children back then. This day, this was uh, Boutrous Boutrous Golly, which is who was a, the the Secretary General at that time. He was of just about to retire of the UN. And I that that period, and I I was amazed at how they could they could take uh, they could survive uh, the the the. What is the, the the Crucero Real back then was the inflation thing was just so out of line that the, it was worth about well a dollar was worth at the time six hundred and seventy five thousand cruceros okay a dollar American dollar so when I gave him gave them a dollar they were absolutely petrified to take it. That they'd be st- it would be stolen from them. Someone would kill them for that dollar. Okay? At the same time, they they wanted that dollar because that dollar could get them supplies for the kids as they knew how to negotiate milk, good milk. Cause it, it, back in those days, it was grade, grade A, grade B, grade C, grade D, grade E, grade G. It was grade A... Close to a lot of water, a little bit more water in it, a little bit more water in it, a little bit more water, and it go, you know until there was more water than it was anything else, mm-hmm. you know, and yet they could they could make that go for months on that one dollar. They were looking for a thousand cruceros a day to survive, and a dollar was worth six hundred seventy-five thousand cruceros. Mm-hmm. Man, I I learned so much about that, and you know just working in those ways. I, I saw things, you know, and I I had to write about it. So how do you do that? It's instrumental music. How do you put that into a song? All those feelings. Sit down. You start to write. Sometimes I'd whistle. This 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 theme would come. And this would be around. I go, man, I need to write that down somehow. You know, I'd sit down and I start to write it. By Solfeo, things like this, Solfeggio.
in the Indian tradition, a lot of the percussion, all of them, will. it's important to sing your parts before you play them, right? Yeah, but those are the... That we're talking about now where they're concerned, the percussion players. Sure. You know, uh, they're, they're singing pattern, that's a different thing. I know, but do you, mm-hmm. do, you do that for any... Do you sing drum beats no, before? No, no. I phrase. I mean, for me, music is 4-4, four, four, plus a couple more parts you just throw in for just in case the opera... It's amazing to me that that there was nothing simple about the show last night. It's amazing to hear something like that. First, I'm not a musician. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's coming from that such complicated, amazing music is coming from such a simple place kind of blows my mind. Well, the thing is, is that uh, now it's too much academia, you know. Oh, you know, uh, I'm from MIT and I've got to do blah, blah, blah. And it's got to be, this is the second power. No, man, it's just... One, two, three, button, dee, da, dee. And it's a phrase, da, dee, 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 so the the that is like and a little bit more and a little bit more and it just keeps going like this. But you're phrasing, you're playing around that pattern, but you're sustaining the tempo. You're staying in sync with everybody, especially yourself. Most of the times, musicians, um, for sure, I'm convinced. Are not have not really fully learned to control their sense of internal synchronization, which means that they don't use their internal body clock. They don't. They can't play. If it's a drummer, he's playing the right foot. He's playing the left foot. But is he playing it in control? Are they in sync with each other, and in sync with what they play up on top with the right hand and the left hand? If they're not then the weakest link is going to affect negatively what happens with everything else. And you're going to lead psychologically. I want to show everybody what I can do. You're going to lead with your strong hand. Now you're playing faster. You know, you're, you're not playing in sync. First with yourself. Because you're thinking about, don't worry, I don't want to, I'm not going to sound bad. And then that carries over into everybody else's situation. Did that ever happen toward the end of Mahavishnu? No. No, and that's one of the reasons why I was there. Between me and Rick Laird, that was not possible. Okay, and we'll get to them, but um, at the time-lapse photos, folks, definitely get this CD. But um, we just lost Robert Hunter of The Grateful Dead, and um, he was Jerry Garcia's longtime coordinator mm-hmm. uh, partner. <clears throat> Another longtime partner of Jerry's was Merle Saunders. Mm-hmm. Do you remember where you first met Merle Saunders? I met Merle Saunders... I hope I'm right, working with Jerry Garcia uh, in a jam session. Was it at the Waldorf? I mean, it's, this goes back a ways. Well, I know they, they did a big thing at the Boston Symphony Hall in like early 70s. Was it around? That wasn't the- me. No, I wasn't involved in that. Um, I ended up working with him. Merle, like, oh, it's coming back. Uh, because Merle had a had a had a band, he had a had a, a a really good band, and somehow he got hold of me to play with him. Because uh, I was living in Mill Valley uh, from 1973 to about 878, when we had the had the big earthquake um, right about then, and I I jumped ship real quick. 
Um, uh, but uh, during that period, we we had things from time to time, either in in San Rafael or Fairfax or Larkspur or uh, Corte Madera. You know, it, it was kind of like we all everybody threw together. And Billy, are you available for this or blah blah blah? Yeah, we're going to work here as well. Sweetwaters down in in Mill Valley or things like this would happen. And one day, out of the blue. He said, I got this script from Oscar Brown Jr. Um, I said, wow, man, that cat's great, you know. And said, yeah, I love the things that he's written. Um, and he's got this, he's got a, a thing that may go open, we have to go to the Winter Garden or something like that. I can think it was where it was. Um, the Winter Garden, which is where Cats New is. New York, yeah. Cats been for years, so yeah. this is... So I said, Okay, but that's pre cats. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Just saying. And, and I'm going, legendary theater yeah, I'm like, hello. What that's all about? He said, Well it's a play. I said, Well, okay. What's it all tell me more. He says, Well, Muhammad Ali's gonna do it. Said, really? <laughs> said, oh no, I don't believe it. He said, Yeah, now nah, I gotta go to see I don't believe it, but I gotta go and see it for myself. And he said, Yeah, can you, you can play a drunk? I said, Yeah, with Oscar? Sure. And we started working on this thing. Um, with the with the group, and I don't even know I don't know who else was in the band, but Merle, yeah, we 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 it was sort of fit like a hand and glove, you know. The, I mean, he's playing organ, and we just it just felt really good, felt really good. Uh, Todd Barkin had it was a, a a a jazz promoter, jazz club promoter. He had um, I can't remember the name of the club because he had one in 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 Berkeley, uh, and he had one in 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 San Francisco, and he helped put that together. They were all connected somehow. Uh, there was such a rich music scene that things overlapped. You know, you people were working with everybody. It was really good players. I mean, the East Bay, that's that's Oakland, that's the Oakland stroke, stroke, and all the people over there, that's Tower of Power, but, and Cold Blood, and, and it just kept going and going and going and going. And we all then ended up being all kind of in the same in pot, so to speak, you know. And and Merle, we did this thing. Um, that's how I, I really came in contact with, with Ali for just a very brief and short time. Um, which you, was off the hook. What are your memories of, of Muhammad? Um, what did it do with what Muhammad? Muhammad Ali. Like, was he a jazz fan? And did you get to talk, it wasn't talk a, with him? Yeah, he just he was uh, he was acting. He loved the band, of course. Um, um, the first time I ever got hit by air, uh, <laughs> I mean, he started fooling around with me and and uh, said, "Come on, I'm gonna show you something." He started doing that, and this uh, is pre. <laughs> I'm doing punches. Pre. Joe Frazier, pre right. Joe Frazier, mm-hmm. and he just went it hands it down, and then it's and then all of a sudden there was a fist in my face, like about this, like this big, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't a fist; it was almost like a slap, and that's when I realized the concept of, of sting like a bee, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Right. But the sting like a bee part was the thing that I use on my cymbals, so I draw the sound out. So what he was doing. When he when he actually when his hand connected with you, if you know, he was drawing the the, the he was stinging you with the hand. He never got that close enough to make contact with me. What he did do is just like this, 
But his hand was like, it went this way and out and back down. And I was on the floor. And he never touched me. Wow. It's, that, that was a serious wake-up call for me. I mean, it's like, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going I'm to dodge. And this. I didn't even have a chance to do this. And it was just here. You know, and then it was gone. And I was like, I hurt my, my neck. The, the air was so strong that it slapped me backwards. So can you imagine boxers? I mean, what they get hit with? I mean, he, he didn't follow through. He drew his punch back. Well, it says a lot about Joe Frazier, too. Because Joe Frazier had his marbles right up, right up till near the end. And he yeah. took a lot of hits. Yeah, he did. And, and Ollie went to the hospital for two weeks and Joe went for six. <laughs> Ollie was in for two weeks, ten days to two weeks from what I remember. Yeah, he, he, was, he had a couple lumps and stuff like that. But Joe was out, gone for, for a month and a half, man. So tell me more about this play. Muhammad bankrolled it. Are you saying he acted in it too? Yes, he was. He was the lead. He was the lead. lead uh, he had the lead actor in it. How was he as an actor? I was a believer. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you weren't going to say anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say no. <laughs> I mean, I don't really think about it. I just, I was in awe most of, I mean, I, I couldn't even come up with a, with a critique about him. Now, I don't remember very much, but I just remember the music. Merle and I, and I can't remember who else. I don't even think we, we may not even have even had a bass player. So you were playing in the pit, right? No, we were playing on the stage on top. But you'd previously played with plays and not had success, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. You... Promises. Well, promises, promises had success. Success. No, but uh, I mean, you, it wasn't conducive to your style of play. Oh, uh, for that it was. For the Ali one. Yeah. I'm saying previous to that. Previous to that, I just played normally pit shows when I had, when I, as a sub. For Bobby Thomas or Grady Tate or somebody like that in the city, yeah. So it was a play, but there was room for embellishment as a player. No, I had to play my part. Wow. It, was, it was written, and I had to play my part. It was all set up as to what we did, and I, I didn't. It wasn't complicated at all. It's about watch the conductor, which I think might have been would have been uh, Brown, yeah. And Ed Sullivan had you speculate had something to do with this being short lived. That's what I hear tell. He just cut it short. But somebody, he influenced it. I don't know I don't know if he did it himself personally, but from one day to the next. After, I think it was about a week or so, we were gone. Was there some pre-existing animosity? that? Drew? I don't know, man. I just played drums in the band. That's bizarre. Bizarre to me. And so getting back to the original, um, so, so any, uh, did you continue playing with Merle after that? Ever? If I did, maybe once or twice. Just sitting in? More. Not much more. But Gar- Keystone, Berkeley. Keystone, Keystone, Keystone Berkeley, Keystone, sure. San Francisco. That's yeah. what it was, yeah. How about Miles? How did Miles find you? And then you, you get in mm-hmm. on Jack Johnson and Bitches Brew. Jack DeJunette contacted me while I was working at the on, in 1969 while um, um, the, uh, what's his name? Uh, astronaut Armstrong... Neil Armstrong? Neil Armstrong was actually get, jumping off this thing about the moon and steps and all of that. I was playing a gig at the Village Gate and uh, <clears throat> upstairs. Miles was working downstairs with Chick Corea, Dave Holland, 
uh, Wayne Shorter. Who am I missing? It might have been it. Chick Corea, Dave Holland, Wayne Shorter. Oh, um, and Jack Dijonette. Jack came upstairs and said, Hey, Billy, I, I decided to tell Miles that I, I, I decided not to be in the band anymore. Would you be up for playing in the band? I said, twist my arm. <laughs> um, he said, okay, Miles will come up and he's going to, you know, reach out to you. And uh, and he'll give you a call because he has some record dates planned for this coming weeks. Yeah, it. Okay. So, so if you see a guy with big, you know, uh, bug glasses on in the in dark and reflection some that's him I said okay and I was working with uh, Junior Mance I think uh, at that time or Charlie Mingus or something and I was next thing you know I see this guy with these bug eyes and just looking listening and then when he was done he just I mean when we were playing and then next time I looked up he was gone uh, my girlfriend at the time the following day got very, very upset with a person who called on the phone and she couldn't understand what he was saying um, because he kept whispering or something. How might that have sounded? Huh? How might he have sounded on the phone? Oh, he sounded? Yeah. You don't you do an imitation? Oh, yeah, but that's, it's very easy. You know, I said, I need to talk to Billy. You know. I need to talk to Billy. And she kept, who is this? Who is this? Bitch. You know, names. She... Yeah. Finally, hung up. I come in. Uh, what's going on? Why are you looking at it? You know, you somebody's looking for you. I don't even know if they. You know these people. They, they, they whisper. I said, whisper. <laughs> I said, <clears throat> I said, what did it sound like? And she starts to tell me. Couldn't understand what he was saying. I said. Do you leave a phone number? Oh, I said, okay. Phone rang again. Hello? He said, Columbia Studio, G, 9 o'clock tomorrow. Click. Wow. Of course I was there. I want to ask you about it, because you tell this story about at one point you're sitting there and you do a drum pattern. He, he acknowledges it and says, come in the next day. And then you came in the next day and didn't right. remember it. Yeah, Is there did. a chance, because his big thing was never play today what he did yesterday. Is there a chance he was testing the way you think and that he wanted, he wanted never, you to play something different? I never different? thought about that, man. That's too much thinking. <laughs> That's me. You know, you know, he wanted me to do something. He wanted me to give him a groove. Certain, so I played it. But I don't have those things packed in groove number one, two, three, four, five. I just sort of played something. He said, I like that. Remember that. I'm doing it. Okay. I'm going. After I played, I went, what did I play? Right after I played, I couldn't remember what I played. I mean, it was just a little thing. And uh, otherwise, nobody was talking to Billy. They were just, into, you know, they had a piece of paper with with five lines and spaces on it. You know, about about seven different systems or ten. And all across the system, we have been about about these amount of notes, big, you know, per, one per system. You know, I don't know. And I was laughing, I was chuckling. And then he comes and he asks me something like that. I go, okay. And I do it. Now, the following day, I'm really, really concerned because I don't remember what I played. And I'm going, I hope he forgets <laughs> to ask me. We go through all this, almost to the end of the session. He says, Remember that? And he comes over to me and says, remember that thing I said? I said, yeah, which I didn't. 
He said, play it for me. So I played something. He said, that's not what. <laughs> so now I'm waiting for like, you know, and, and, and he says, but I like it. You know, play that. So, so we play it. So what's it like? You know all these musicians from other spaces. When you get in and when you're in the under the umbrella of Miles, do their personalities change? Is it is, does the dynamic change? Everybody, yeah, there's a dynamic dynamic change on many different levels. People just listen to what he says or to the body language. You know, they play they play for him, and that's that's what I I love. That's beautiful because they respect him, so they play for him. They don't play to compete with him. And you and McLaughlin obviously. It, it developed an amazing chemistry. You can hear it in the Mahavishnu. There's the the, the, the interplay. Mm -hmm. Does that start in the Bitches Brew sessions? No. That definitely comes on later. It just comes on. I mean, it was there, but it was not. It was not necessary in the Bitches Brew sessions. Much lighter. What Miles was doing had nothing to do with the mo. But you were the one John asked to work with, and there were five drummers there, right? I don't know how many drummers there were there, but I was there. You know, and it would not all the drummers at once. Sometimes the sessions would. There were five keyboard players there. Drummers might have been me, Tony, or me, and no, I don't remember Lenny White, but he was there on other sessions. Um, me and Jack, or just me alone. But before my vision, it was dreams, right? Yeah. And do you, um, how did that flow out? Or was that separate or? Got a phone call from Barry Rogers that him and, and Randy and Michael were working on a project and they wanted wanted me to join them on it. And so then it was like, yeah, I mean, again, Billy's not working. Billy's not turning anything down. You know, if I can do it, the only way I'm going to know if I can or not do it or not is to try. And is that the band you were in where you found yourself rehearsing with... Band of Gypsies below you and Big Brother. Yeah, oh man, and Joplin and everybody else in in, in a uh, a condemned building, you know, with a with a an, uh, a hand a manually a controlled uh, elevator that worked depending on the time of day, you know. I wish still got one of those at the Fox Theater here. Please keep it, you know. It's okay. <laughs> no, but do you do you remember that, that that I mean, would you guys compare notes? I mean, these amazing no, musicians. No, no. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was beyond intellectual. It was more into like what everybody was smoking or what everybody was doing, you know. That, and that, that was about it. And that was not my business, really. How were you able to stay out of the, all that when it was so present? Because that was important. My drug was the music. That was all that was, you know, that mattered to me. I was trying to learn and play. I wasn't about ancillary silliness like that. I didn't have time for it.
got to tell you, when I first did that interview, y'all, I felt like it was a failure. And by the way, thank you to Ira Gross, who was there with us. Who's there? It was just the two of us who, who recorded, who also helped helped end the interview on proper time, because you know that can be an issue with me. Oh, thank you, Ira. And it wasn't with Billy. It wasn't just he had handlers trying to do their job well, and and you know all that. It was that he had plans with his wife that he wanted to honor. So I really wanted to honor that. He invited me into his hotel room. He gave me ninety minutes. Uh, there's more to this interview, <clears throat> folks. We we trimmed it down, but. Um, I went back and listened to it, and I was really, I thought it came out really well. The one thing that's like the colonel, the colonel always says the purity of your intention is of paramount importance. And if you guys listen, when I'm trying to get him to talk early in the, early in the uh, interview and then, and then later on in the interview again, when I'm trying to get him to talk about his new record, which artists always want to talk about their new record, right? As they should. They've completed the work. They want it to be heard and all that. Well, if they don't, their publicist and manager certainly Which he doesn't have one. Want that. He doesn't have one, which leads to my story in a minute. But um, he really, it was really important to him to convey the ethos behind everything he does, to, to the ethos behind selecting the musicians, paying them properly, everything. It, it was almost a cousin of your triangle of love, too. Keep the musicians, oh, yeah. the venues, and myself happy. Keep everything happy and make everything work. Be accountable. Make sure these musicians know they're, they're respected and, and that you appreciate them. Just, it just really impressed me and really reminded me of Colonel Bruce in that way. So, folks... <clears throat> Here's the deal. As I said, no publicist, no manager, no nothing. And I tried to contact him various ways before he came to town, unsuccessfully. I mean, and by the way, Rob, what what made you think that the pigeons were going to work? I mean, out of all the things, <laughs> pigeons? Ugh. Well, you know, they're Boston pigeons, so they're smart. Mm, got a point. Not smart enough. So um, he did a two-night run at the City Winery here in Atlanta, and I went down the first night. Uh, oh, that's right. I, I got you tickets. Let's not forget that. Thank I got you. you the got them through, the, through the winery. Thank you, City Winery Atlanta. And uh, and Rob. Which, was, by the way, Michael Dorf, you should be a guest on this show. We had we broke bread together, and then you disappeared. Disappointing. Come on the show, Michael. I, I read your book and everything. Turkey. And so, uh, uh, Rob, I remember he, Rob's like, look, they're doing two. I, I was unavailable. I think I was out of town or something. Uh, but Rob, really, I remember this. I remember you wanted to, and you're like, I'll just go, and I'll, I'll, I'll do what I do, and you know, go up to belly up, and I'll go. No, 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 no. So I went down early, kind of poked around, thought I'd try to say hey. But really, with <clears throat> musicians, you don't want to talk to them right before or right after they perform, I find, in general. Um, I maintain my complete sobriety. Not that I would have been trash, but, you know, might have eaten an edible or who knows. You know, nope, 100% sober. Uh, and then hung out after the show, went to the merch line. By the way, familiarized myself already. Even though I knew Billy, I kind of brushed up on things in advance as though I was preparing for an interview. Went to the merch line, but stayed at the end of the line. So if anyone came, I put them in front of me so that I was the last You're person. You're the anchor. I am the anchor. Because I do not like holding up merch lines, talking to musicians. I hate it. I always feel bad for the person behind me. And I've so many times seen people just hoard time with musicians while people are waiting in line. And, and I've found it disgusting. And I don't want to be that guy. But you also are the guy that you make sure to buy the merch and not just talk. I bought the book and I bought uh, the CD. I actually bought two copies of the CD and ended up lending both out to musicians and got neither of them back. Musicians don't just take your women, people. <laughs> anyway, so I get up to the front of the line. Yeah, yeah, go on. And um, introduce myself, start talking to him, threw around a little knowledge, not trying to, not trying to uh, flaunt my knowledge, but enough to indicate that I could 
handle a conversation with him. Okay. And then I said, what, do you do interviews? And, uh, you know, I've had, I've had no success getting finding a publicist. And he proudly said he doesn't have one. And he said, just, you know, my email is, and I had to go by memory, believe it or not. I didn't oh have a pen. Oh, my God. <laughs> you didn't write it down in your phone notes right then and there? I don't know what, what it was. I think I did, but then I also wanted to, I forget what it was, because he did sign my book. There was a pen in that. I don't think I had paper. I don't know what it was, but I, to somewhat. Folks, the truth is he probably wrote it on a sheet of paper. A, couldn't find the sheet of paper again, or B, ate the sheet of paper by mistake. Possibly. I'm not going to deny it. But here's the deal. So I went home, sent him an email. I was up like, two or three hours later thinking he'd respond that night if he wanted to do an interview. Oh, my God. Nobody hasn't was. responded yet. Oh, my God. I, was, I was almost went to buy bonbons. <laughs> Came this close. Um, so then I figured I went to bed. I was like, oh, well, he was just putting me on. So I wake up uh, and I'm making my call. I check my email, nothing. Making my coffee. Go into the other room. I, we, I was working on some episode at the time. Started working and then pop pops up an email, you know, come by two o'clock, come by my hotel. And there it was. And I had to reach Ira, who had a freaking interview that day for a job. Oh, and I, this is like, I don't want to brag too much, but Ira's pretty high level job. This isn't just like, you know, manager at Shoney's. I mean, this is like a major multimillion uh, thing uh, going on in Europe somewhere. Something that's been suspended now because he did get the job. But uh, he went right from that job, right back to his house. And then I picked him up right when he got home. We went right to the hotel and got there just in time. It was really scrambly. It was like going, it felt, well, once like, again, go, felt like going you, to a show. Thank you, Ira, once again. And Rob, thank you for taking the time and making the effort for our show. To, I appreciate that. Speaking of Ira, we're talking about doing a little thing too. It'd be a very low-key podcast. No sponsors. No Osiris. Be our own little thing. So keep an eye out for that, too, because he has an archive from 20 years of Jazz Fest. He's gone every year, taped all the late night stuff, plus all kinds of other stuff. And we're thinking about doing a show where we talk about and play the recordings. And by having no sponsor, we can't get chased after the rights. We could just play the stuff, not make any money, and just put it out there. Probably won't even publicize it much, so you might want to stay, uh, stay dialed in with R-S-T-N-E-R on Twitter, R-S-T-N-E-R, on Twitter. And there goes W-T-N-S. No, no, no. <sighs> Stop it. It won't, it won't be because of that. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a second, I gotta take this call. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so cool. Uh, hope everyone enjoyed the interview. And Shout out to Spafford. I watched them in a show last night. It was fun to see live music. <clears throat> they were at a drive-in. How many people got pulled over on the way home from that? I don't know, but... Um, I hope none. I'm just saying, though. That's I, I was... I was so, I tuned in for a little bit, and I thought they did a nice job. Uh, I thought the social distancing spacing was good. It looked like people did were Did you see it? I didn't see many audience shots. I was at one point, Waffle and I were watching, and he, we, and I, we had an argument. He was like, why aren't they showing the, the audience? This is this historic yeah. thing. My feeling was either the audience was too dark to be seen, or that maybe there were people right up front dancing, not observing social distancing, and they didn't want to flaunt that, which True. more likely of the two. Uh, I saw some shots from people that were there that were that, that was posted on facebook okay and so i got the kind of you know that angle too and so people were like hanging out with coolers in front of their cars in the space in their boxes you know so they weren't just sitting in their cars they were outside and they were dancing and having a good time uh it, i don't know if people are intermingling and walking around with masks I, I can't speak to that but from what i saw people seemed to be respecting the social distancing however like i said 
there were coolers and people were drinking. And to me, I'm like, you know, that's, I mean, obviously, like, you go to, I mean, just, it's no different than really going to a concert. Typically, people are drinking at a concert. So anyone that leaves the parking lot of a concert is a good target, just as this would have been a good target. So hopefully, though, the police, I know, like, I don't know if you've heard this, but I've known people um, that are getting pulled over a lot more frequently now because these cities need the money. You know, they're, they're all their revenue from tickets have dropped, in the la- obviously, you know. <laughs> well, so they're a lot stricter. Uh, so I'm wondering if that was a th- case or not. Hey, if you know, tell us. Shoot us an email, insideoutwtns at gmail.com. Good question, but do you always know the answer to this question? And this will be the trivia forever, Seth. Who was the first jam band to play live after Stay in Place? I guess it would be Spafford. There you go. Congratulations, Spafford. Well done. Yeah. And um, one last thing. One last thing. Uh, oh, my God. I'm spacing. Oh, the fish. <clears throat> the fish. I stand by my belief. We are, On this day, we're, we are uh, recording this just on the Monday before. Last weekend, they... In they, the yeah, they announced they announced their dinner in the movie on Sunday instead of Friday. They'd been announcing it on Friday, and they announced it on Sunday. The whole party time controversy show. I believe, as I have said, if you listen to the Shakedown stream with Bob Weir at the 12-minute mark of the interview with Gary, Lam- Gary Lambert and David Lemieux interviewing Bob Weir, he says, we are getting very close to overcoming latency. Jay Lane and I have played remotely, and then we tried to play with a musician from San Diego. So I guess, and that was different because it was further away. So every time you go through a hub, it adds to the latency, but they are learning how to overcome it. This makes me think that fish, because if you do overcome it, who better to debut it than fish and Bobby and Trey are fans, friends, right? The dead org and the fish org are pretty tight now, or am I imagining things? I mean, I don't know, Rob. I'm, Bobby's I'm, not doing this to enrich himself. I Bobby's would, doing this to let other musicians right. do it. I, I think you have. I think you're on something. Yes, I do think Fish would be one to do it. Because However, then, I don't I, know if they'd be the one to debut it. I don't think they're going to put themselves out there like that. I think the technology needs to be proven. Why and proven not? They hard. have a sense of humor about themselves. They live in the theater of embarrassment, just like the Colonel. Why uh, not Fish? Why not? Mm-hmm. And then know. it's the best my, way to, get, thoughts, to let a whole wide variety of other musicians out there know that hey, look, this is what we, this is where we're at now with this. Mm. All right, well, hey, listen, we'll tune in every week to find out. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Do check out Osiris on YouTube and all those spaces, and of course, uh, next week live, Dave Bruza on U- our Facebook and our YouTube and Osiris, etc. So please tune in. And we're going to leave you with this. Um, if you heard in the interview, Savannah the Serene used to be the intro to Spanish Moss on Crosswinds. But with this project, it became a composition unto itself. And that's what we're going to hear. Savannah the Serene and then the updated version of the wonderful, wonderful Spanish Moss.